Hey, I'm going to let you know just a couple things, just to set the, to set the tone uh, a little bit uh, this morning. We're going to be doing big chunks of material, like I'll do a big chunk and she'll do a big chunk. I, you already know this from last night, but it's the first time that we've done one of these together here at Hume. And so, uh, yeah, we, we, uh, we're, we're going to seesaw as much as we can, but uh, you'll notice that one of us will take a take a time chunk and then the other one will. Um, and, and by the way, this is not, uh, for those of you that are more theologically trained or you're kind of more theologically focused, this, this morning is not about a theological argument about submission and headship and, and where that's at in the theological conversation. Um, I enjoy that thoroughly, but would probably put you to sleep uh, if we had that conversation. Our presupposition is that headship and submission are good. They're good because God has intended them. That's how God has created us. That's what existed even before the fall, and this is what God has in mind. Uh, and these things redeem and restore us for our good because God has created them. Has the world twisted it? Has, has Satan bent it so that it doesn't properly reflect the glory of God? Absolutely. When we hear submission and headship, it means something that is very different than what the, the scriptural writers intended, what God has intended, or even what we sometimes hear. But God has intended these things to redeem and restore us. All of God's gifts to mankind are intended for our good and God's glory. And so we want to make this very practical this morning. We're not talking about the theology behind headship and, and uh, submission. We're talking just in the practical terms about how does this work itself out. In, in our marriage and in our families. Okay, so because this is our first time, it's always interesting when we do things like this together where, where it's, you know, very even Stephen kind of stuff. And so uh, it took us three hours and two minutes to pick a title, which is 182 minutes. Uh, 182 minutes just to pick... A title. I mean, that's, that's extraordinary to me. Um, I, I preach every week, and so I have to pick titles. It takes me about 30 seconds. Um, and so, okay. so uh, I, it took a lot longer, I and I like wanted... to be titled Stubborn. He, I wanted the title put, to be Two Stubborn People <laughs> Working Out Headship and Submission in, in a Marriage. And she did not like... Being called Stubborn. Being called Stubborn. Even print, though you're going to hear although, her call herself Stubborn in her presentation. <laughs> well, that's fine when I do it. Yeah, yeah. She didn't want okay. me to call her stubborn. So the winners are the gentlemen's. The gentle, is that what that says? Gentlemen? Yeah, it looks like gentlemen. Where are you? Who is All that? right, there you go. We got you Mr. and Mrs. Mugs <laughs> filled, <you> filled <laughs> with snicker bars to keep you awake during this presentation. Well, hey, we do want to make sure that we have a context. And the context for this morning as it is probably whenever we get together, like it is Sunday morning, have you prayed for your church? Mm. Have you prayed for what they are experiencing back at home? Uh, I certainly have been this morning, but as we approach the Word of God, we want to approach it in prayer. So I'm going to ask my wife uh, if she would open us in, in a word of prayer, and then we're going to share some things about us um, and, and have us uh, stand together in honor of God's Word. So let's start with prayer. Pray with me, please. Father, I, we come before you and we give you this time. And you tell us to meet together 
whether it's our friends and family back home meeting in church or us meeting here together, so that we can praise you and we can open our hearts to you to hear from you. God, you have been um, a great teacher in our lives, in our marriage, and I pray that you are teaching us all today where you want us to go, a next step you want us to take, a place of submitting to you, God, as you take one more piece of our lives and make it look like Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that this time will be all for your glory and Amen. for our goodness. We love you, Father. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, we want to let you know a little bit. Uh, maybe we want to let you know a little bit. Hey, there we are. And there we are. Those, those are our names, in case you didn't know. Is this is who uh, we are? That's us. And uh, why don't you tell us five things about who you are and stuff that represents you. Okay. So I grew up in Montana, Wyoming. I was born and raised there. Didn't come out to California till college at Biola. Um, I was from a pastor's family while we lived in Montana. So as a pastor's kids, my parents are still together too. Um, I am a director of programs and development for the Salvation Army, thus the Salvation Army seal as an event. Um, it's been a, a pretty stressful job in the last five years, um, but I love it as well. Um, I love biking, cycling. I usually do about 100 miles a week or more, and um, I cycle with a club called Lightning Velo. I love that. You'll hear more about that as well. And um, I am a compulsive overeater. I've been in a 12-step group for 20-something years, um, which was a, a turning point in our marriage. And uh, so I don't eat sugar and flour, but it also makes eating and dating me a little bit, you know, stressful sometimes. So there's a few things no about me. No sugar or flour in 20 years. I guess that's out, out of this world. Um, that's my entire diet. Uh, <laughs> I am a pastor. I'm a pastor down in Southern California in Long Beach. Uh, I was the youth pastor at the church that I'm at and for six and a half years, and I've been the lead pastor for over 18 years. And so I've been down there for a long time. It's my family. I love it. Uh, and, and that's been the community that we have been a part of. Uh, I love to golf. I golf two times a week, uh, as is cliche for pastors, like what do you do during the week? I actually golf on Mondays and Fridays, and so uh, tomorrow morning when I get up at 4.30, I will go out and I will golf tomorrow morning, and so that's just something that I really love doing. Uh, I was born and raised in Southern California. Grew up down in South Orange County, been in Southern California my entire life, and uh, went to Biola University, which was amazing because I come from a non-believing home. Uh, my, no, I was the only Christian. Uh, it was so weird to feel like God touched me, but not the rest of my, not the rest of my family. And so I, I come from a very broken home. My parents are divorced and uh, separated. Since then, my mom has come to the Lord. She goes to our church. Uh, mm -hmm. She moved into our area so that she could be near our family and uh, goes to our church. Uh, but my family is still, my dad does not know the Lord and my family still is broken. And so she brings in pastor's family, and I bring in complete insanity. Uh, and the last, the fifth thing about me is I, I, I love uh, baseball cards. Uh, I collect baseball cards. I have too many baseball cards. Uh, they, they were we kicked out of the house by, <laughs> by really a room. merciless wife. Uh, and, and they populate my office and every open closet that I can find at the church. Uh, where I get other ministries to consolidate their stuff so I can keep my baseball cards in that closet. 
Uh, one of the, just as the last thing, just to mention this, because I know a, a lot of the, the guys that are in the room that come to the men's conference know this, but um, I, when I was early on in my career, when I was a youth pastor, I really struggled with pornography, and I, uh, I God just miraculously delivered me out of that uh, about uh, 25 or so years ago, and we run a porn ministry at our church called Pure Desire. Uh, we've done that for over 10 years now, and it has been a, a powerful and freeing ministry to be a part of uh, because of the ubiquitous kind of nature of pornography in our culture uh, and, and the way that is just, just pressing in on so many lives. Uh, but especially, it's, it's been an important part of my life up here at Hume in our men's conferences. I speak on that on a regular basis. In fact, they call me the porn guy, which is not my favorite title <laughs> in the whole world. But, but I wear it. Like, I, I'm, I wear it. Like, that's, hey, that's what God has for us, right? Like, we, we take these things that uh, are our weaknesses, and God shows his strength through them. So, praise God. Um, Anyway, that's a little bit uh, about yeah. me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, have, we, kids. Have, we have children. <laughs> We're not going to tell you. <laughs> we there have two are. girls. Um, Michaela's on the left. She's actually the younger but the taller one. She's 19. She will be 20 on Wednesday. And uh, she goes to Biola University. And woohoo! <laughs> and uh, she's a sophomore this year. She plays on the water polo team. So she was concussed for most of last year because she's a goalie and got an off season. She got a bad concussion. It was an, uh, a hard year for that as it brought out many emotions and anxiety and all kinds of things she's had to deal with because of that. But she loves the Lord. She wanted to go back. I'm excited for that and to see what God has for her this year. Jessalyn is 22. No, she's 23. Oops. Yep. She's 23. Uh, she graduated from Simpson University, if anybody's familiar with that. Um, that's a Christian Missionary Alliance school up in Northern California in Redding. And uh, she works in social work. She is uh, she's a big social justice kid. Um, and she is about to start. She's been working for a year um, with uh, women who've come off the streets in a shelter, um, 12 women that were 18 to 24. And um, real tough job. She was uh, meeting with them every week and doing the social work with them and being their case manager. But she just, she had to drive into L.A. every day, which is like 45 minutes to however many hours. And uh, she 18 just... miles, 18 miles, 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah. You know how it is. Just in case you don't know about L.A. traffic. But she just got a job with the Spiranet, which she's going to be working with kids um, who have aged out of foster care. Uh, they are this most susceptible to human trafficking, and that's one of her big goals, is to keep them out of it and to help reform foster care a little bit to, to protect kids. But she's going to be working for, with girls, or actually all youth, 18 to 24, coming out of foster care, who are being placed into homes on this second step. So they've aged out of foster care, but they're still being put into apartments. She's going to be living life with them, teaching them cooking and skills and how to set up a doctor's appointment and everything from that to finding them jobs and permanent housing. So I'm very proud of my daughter. Can you tell? <laughs> Sorry. So she loves our, the Lord, too, and she works in our youth group. Uh, our family enjoys uh, being with each other. We, we, uh, we still have great relationships with, with our, our girls. My girls love, like, they still will snuggle with me on the couch. I, I, uh, I, believe, I believe in what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about families. We're talking about where family starts, which is here, and how we've added people to our family, and someday we will, 
praise God, launched them out uh, into their own families. And so we really look forward to that. Uh, but this is, uh, this is our crew, and this is where we come from. Uh, we also come from a center in our family of the Word of God. And so if you would right now, would you stand in the honor of God's Word? Uh, it'll be on the screen uh, behind us and in front of you. I think. And here we go. And here we go. And there we are. Okay. All right. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And 1 Peter 3, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won, over, won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ says the church, because we are members of his body Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 1 Peter 3. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You may be seated. When, uh, when, my, father, when my father was younger, he was a very forceful man. He led our family with a mixture of iron-fistedness and then long periods of absenteeism. My mother was left to kind of fend for herself in the spaces in between with little to no support from my dad. It led my mom into places of, understandably from my perspective, being, being resentful, lonely. She was overwhelmed by myself and my two younger sisters. I grew up in a house that was filled with the deafening silence of isolation. Occasionally broken by what were emotionally destructive explosions of scream fests between family members. Fortunately, as it often is for a lot of us, it's the devastating memories that are so seared into my psyche. The situation was toxic for everybody and brought about sickness from which the family into which I was born continued to this very day to need healing from. By the power and goodness of the gospel. I always wanted to be different than my dad. It's not to say that I don't want some things to be the same. I love them. 
I want that as well. But I didn't want to repeat the sins of my father. I think every man understands this. We all want this. I actually find it an admirable gospel trait. There's something redemptive about marriage. And as such, we all know that marriage is meant for something greater than we have experienced as a son or a a daughter or even as a single person. I wanted to be the kind of husband who loved his wife gently with a profound compassion that was easy to follow and a deep commitment to Christ which would distinguish me from a father who did not know Jesus, who didn't understand the goodness of God. So when I got married, I wanted to be a strong leader, but I wanted to show my strength differently than my dad. I didn't want to be screaming and forceful and iron-fisted. I wanted to love and lead, provide, protect, just as I saw Jesus do in Scripture. He did that for us, for the church. But after our honeymoon, when I walked into our little one-bedroom apartment in Cypress, California, I realized I had no idea how to love, lead, provide, or protect this woman who I'd sworn my love to just two weeks earlier. I mean this in the nicest possible way. I truly do. But one of the main reasons I married my wife is because I never have to guess what she's feeling. Not ever. I'll let that sink in. For those of you that know my wife well, you know that she's a passionate woman. She wears her emotions like I wear a pair of jeans, comfortably and right out there for everybody to see. Again, I don't mean it negatively. I know it sounds like that in our culture, but I mean it positively. This is a high-maintenance woman, and I'm delighted with it. If she were low-maintenance, it would be boring. It would not engage me. Like, I'm super engaged in this because I always know how she feels. She isn't wired like someone who's low-maintenance. And looking back now, I have to really affirm the goodness of God in making you that way. But as a newly married guy, I almost immediately discovered that the way she communicated and the way she communicated about her emotions, the complexity of it all, um, was beyond me. I would compare it to the way that women describe colors. What a man would describe as the color blue, a woman will describe as periwinkle or, or turquoise or cornflower. It's blue. My male vocabulary just doesn't have those words. And I didn't have words for all the emotions that she was feeling. It's simple to say that we don't understand our wives, but when I was dating her, I I showed this great ability to speak the language of Melinda. And Melinda showed a great ability to speak the language of Chris. But when we got under pressure, we would default back to our own mother language. I would start talking to Chris, and she would start talking to Melinda, and we'd be talking to each other, and we'd be like, no, 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 you're not hearing me. Let me repeat it louder and more aggressively, because then you'll get it, right? I'm just going to scream at you in a different language now. I felt paralyzed. My wife wanted to follow me. She wanted me to lead, but I was, una- I was inadequate. I was unable. All this was amplified even more because I was a pastor. Not only a typical newlywed, but a pastor. Pastors live in a fishbowl. People feel an almost strange obligation 
to tell their pastor things about their expectations of the pastor's behaviors, his preferences, his clothing choices. I was told once that it was easier to listen to my sermons if I would wear a tie. <laughs> Hairstyles, praise God, I lost all that. <laughs> Morals and everything else. One of those expectations early on was that Melinda would submit to me, even as a volunteer at the church. Here she was serving, and when she would share an opinion that was maybe different than mine, it was looked down upon. It was not received well because she was violating the submission, headship, followership ethic, and it put an extra pressure into our relationship. I found all of it quite difficult to navigate, and I tend to respond cautiously to these things, slowly, because I'm not sure what to do. Over the years, Melinda and I have been able to work out what it means for her to submit and for me to lead and for me to love Melinda as Christ loved intentionally and sacrificed for his beloved church. But the road has been arduous, and I would imagine that most of you are on that same road. I would also say that I don't, I don't hold her responsible. I, I mainly hold myself responsible. I credit my own brokenness. And it's combined with my passionate nature. It's really a gracious way of saying that I lose my temper a lot and I get angry and I yell. Uh, I get angry out of embarrassment. Feeling inadequate. So learning to live over these last 28 years, according to the things of Christ, I, I know that's at the heart of the believer. But because it was so anti-instinctual, because it's just so unnatural to live my life in submission to Christ. It took a lot of hard work to learn leadership and, and to learn submission. I promised a great many things to my wife on my wedding day. We wrote our own vows. And I can say with 100% sincerity, I meant every single word. I meant every single promise that I have broken. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> When you listen to these young guys, gals uh, say these vows, do you not think, oh, this is going to be good to watch? <laughs> Truth is, when you put two independent, passionate, stubborn, 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 opinionated people into a marriage, uh, healing from the Lord is generally worked out through a lifelong process. But I've learned that it is that exact process that I've been called to shepherd and to lead as a husband. I am always looking to purify myself before the Lord first and foremost and then proceed to come to my family and seek their very best. I fail often, but my success comes more easily today than it has ever before. To be very practical, just to be down to earth with you, I'll end this part of what I'm sharing with this. In our lives, one of the most practical ways that I lead is to take personal responsibility for the environment of our home. The emotional atmosphere that is inside of the walls of my house, that is part of my household. Women often organize and set the pace for how home and family function. Not every time. I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be chauvinistic. Uh, but generally speaking, women organize and set the pace for how the home and the family function. But a man can make or break the function of the home with the emotional environment that he brings. I believe that men are responsible for creating the very best environment possible for God, for his wife, and by God's grace, 
if God so blesses you with your children. The way I lead my home in doing this involves four crucial but simple environments. I know that some of you will hear these as things to do, things to add, more pressure. I got more things to do. Fantastic. I came for a retreat and I got a list. Nope. These are our environments that I'm talking about and the way that we practically work them out. These items include yearly, monthly, weekly, and daily events. And I'll begin with the yearly event because you're here. You're here at our yearly event. It should be the easiest one for you. And, and congratulations, you've already fulfilled the yearly event uh, just by sitting here. Once a year, I take Melinda away for a weekend retreat that is focused on our Christian marriage. This is not a vacation to Hawaii. All right, <laughs> don't mistake that. This is a weekend designed to build your Christian marriage. While away, I initiate a conversation every year that asks, what went well this past year? And what are the things that we never, ever want to see happen again? <laughs> then we look forward to the year that's coming and ask, what goals and hopes do we have for the year ahead? If you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. When our children move out of our home someday, I don't want to look across my living room and wonder, who's that woman sitting over there on the couch? It's easy to go from lovers to good friends to compatible roommates to strangers who co-parent children while neglecting their marriage. But as the Apostle Paul declared in the New Testament several times in the most emphatic language that was available to him, may it never be. May it never be said of us. Every year we retreat so that we can look back and look forward. We've chosen to come to Hume Lake for the past 28 years for this retreat. Hume Lake is far away for us. It's over 300 miles from my home. One way. Through the stinking grapevine. Uh, we stay in nice housing when we're here. We stay, we stay uptown over in Hickory and Black Oak. It's expensive. Hear me on this though. Nothing good comes into your marriage without intentional investment. A yearly marriage retreat is way cheaper than a divorce. <laughs> I am shocked speechless, which is saying something, by folks <laughs> who tell me that they cannot afford a weekend to a place like Hume while they drive out of the parking lot in their Tesla, carrying the new smartphones, and sit in living rooms with home theater systems that rival the local Cinemark theater. Gentlemen, I'm speaking to your leadership here. If you don't invest today, you are going to pay for it tomorrow. Lead your wife away from her normal life to a place where you can have a worthwhile mountaintop conversation about having a better life together. Be ye intentional. No one has ever achieved a better marriage by mistake. Lead her to a place which is a benefit, a place where you can both receive godly biblical input, like, like, you, like we all have this weekend. Invest the money, invest the time, invest who you are into making your once-a-year weekend a great environment for your marriage. Good job in being here. Don't let it stop here. When you go home, you pre-register for next year. <laughs> you just go after it. Make sure you set it. I'm not saying this. I don't get anything from Hume. Like that. I don't get like commission on based on how many of you sign up for next year's retreat. But we'll be here. And we would love to see you here as well. 
I believe headship only makes sense when you show the same value to your wife that Christ shows for the church. And that means creating environments for better things by sacrificing yourself for her. Your calling, fellow men, is clear. And in my own opinion, I find it to be the more difficult calling, actually, between the husband and the wife. I know the wives in the room are like, really? <laughs> Let me have a conversation with you about that. Seriously. Do you want to have a better marriage that reveals the gospel? Then love and lead and provide and protect her by taking one weekend a year to look back and to look forward, to create a great environment for your marriage. Man, submission to me must be awesome. Oh, it's so easy. I mean, you're kind of with a rock star, baby. <laughs> No, it's a, you how's all it been? Be so lucky. I don't think, I don't think submissions, I think it's been a tough thing for you. Uh, it was a tough thing to start out in. What, tell some of that story. Well, like I said last night, um, leading into marriage, the idea of submitting, yeah, no. I said, most of us ladies, right, we're good with, yes, I want a man to love me. I want a man to live life with me, but submitting to somebody else was a hard concept to me. Tell somebody else telling me what to do or ruling over me. I was not comfortable with that. There's verses in Ephesians 5.21 I was good with, the submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Oh, that's good. We can do that. But when I got to 5.22, wives submit to your husbands, that did not go well. Following and submission to leadership goes against my nature. In many ways and for years, I held to the idea that this is just how God made me. I'm independent. I'm able to think for myself, as if this was in conflict with what he was asking. So I tried compromising positions where I would, you know, just stay and kind of dance around those submit to your husband passages. But unfortunately, that led to a lot of negative and disrespectful behaviors. Mm. I didn't think of it that way. I was just being me but I would end up questioning everything, not trusting his decisions without being convinced that every other option had been cons considered. Anybody else deal with this? <laughs> <laughs> um, protesting everything that was new or not like I was raised. That's not how the Lukey family did it. And fighting for my perspective to the detriment of our unity and our relationship. So what happened to change me? In 12-step group, you say what I was like, what happened to change me, and what I'm like now, if anybody's ever been in a 12-step meeting. So what happened to change that? Well, it all started when Long Beach Alliance Church asked Chris to come back as the lead pastor. <laughs> so when he was the youth pastor, you know, youth pastor's wives, any youth pastor's wives in here? I don't know. Okay, they've got it easy. Nobody <laughs> looks at them. They can screw up. I've been in churches where youth pastor's wives show up to half the Sundays. Nobody notices. Nobody cares, but if the senior pastor's wife isn't there, right? So, and my mom was a senior pastor's wife, so I had some expectations of my own. But I was excited for Chris and felt like God had been preparing him for this, but I was scared to death that I was not the right woman for this unspoken job of pastor's wife. My complete inadequacy drove me to my knees and to what has become my favorite promise of, script, of scripture. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So I started to pray for wisdom. I started to beg for wisdom. 
and to seek out wisdom. So as I'm seeking out, then I get to Ephesians 5, where I'm reminded to look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So I'm like, okay, God has something to say to me in Ephesians 5. I'm paying attention. Oh, no. Verse 22. Oh, man. Lord, why? (laughs) That was my prayer. You gave me this mind, this personality, these opinions. Well, most of them. And this righteous rightness that lives in my gut and must be heard. Why would I submit to Chris when clearly I have thought this out in much more detail than he has? For years, my thick head could not embrace this concept, this command that was directly to me, the wife. But God in his goodness and in his intimate knowledge of Melinda decided to teach me a spiritual truth in an unexpected way. So back in the fall of 2009, two years after Chris's first triathlon, when I was pretty sure this annoying new fad of his was not going to go away, I decided I'd better take up cycling if I wanted to spend any time with my husband. The only problem was that Chris was faster and stronger than me, and I couldn't keep up with him. So it bugged him, and it bugged me. So on one of our first rides, Chris suggested that I draft him. And to be honest, I was a little offended. (laughs) Didn't drafting mean that I would be behind and follow him? Why should he be in the lead? And how was I supposed to see where we were going since he's bigger and taller than me? And wouldn't it be better if I was out in front so that he wouldn't forget about me and leave me behind? You're getting a picture. (laughs) Come on, doesn't that make sense? So it actually, to my shame, took a ride with a girlfriend who suggested the same thing and explained to me what drafting does and convinced me to draft her before I was actually willing to try it with Chris. So for you cycling novices, like I was, here is a quick definition. Drafting is when one person bikes out front and pushes the wind out, creating a draft or area with less wind wind resistance so that a second person biking close behind can keep up with a faster rider. It means the person in back does not have to work as hard and at times even feels like they are being pulled along with little or no effort. The faster you go, the more benefit the person following receives from the draft. Okay, so that sounded like what I needed, so I started drafting Chris when we would ride and I discovered a few important lessons. Drafting another rider takes more skill and concentration than I ever imagined. It is hard work. Okay? Two, you have to trust the person you draft and study their moves and their pedal cycle to make sure you don't run into them and are a good follower. I've flipped my bike twice drafting people and hitting them and then flipped my bike. It's, it's dangerous. Drafting another rider is dangerous for both you if the follower is not paying attention, thus (laughs) number two. And then one day I discovered a fourth thing. So Chris and I were cycling on Pacific Coast Highway heading to Huntington Beach when Chris started accelerating going up a hill. Oh no, I can never keep up on the hills. I was drafting him tightly and was actually able at that point to stick with him without too much extra effort. I was surprised that I was not exhausted and out of breath, was able to enjoy the beauty of the ocean on my right, and that moment 
what, and at that moment was incredibly thankful for Chris's strengths and his willingness to push the wind for me. I, find myself, I found myself asking God, since I had think time, I didn't have to pay attention to what was out in front, <laughs> is this what you meant? Is this headship and followership? Is this submission to my husband as the leader of our marriage? But Lord, this is a benefit to me. This isn't punishment to be in this position. <laughs> and although Chris seems to be getting the raw end of the deal here by having to work harder, he seems happy about this and confident in his position. And as I rode along, comparing drafting to submission in my head, I kept realizing more and more benefits. We are working together. I'm not exhausted. I'm living in the moment and not worried about what is out in front of us. I'm enjoying the beauty and being with my man. I'm going farther and faster and seeing more than I could have by riding alone or alongside him. Drafting is truly a gift. So in summary, my fourth drafting lesson was drafting is a lot like how God says a Christian marriage is designed to function best. And for the wife who chooses to draft her husband, it is a gift, a place of preference with great benefits. Well, I was so amazed at this realization that submitting to my husband was a gift that God was holding out to me, not a punishment or trial to test me. I wish I could say that I immediately put this into practice and have had no trouble whatsoever submitting to my husband's leadership and have never been a disrespectful wife since then. Uh, but knowing truth and knowing how to apply that truth are two different things. Amen. Amen. I'm a little slower and more stubborn than the average. <laughs> what was that word? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Independent. <laughs> Independent. So okay. jump forward maybe four or five years, give or take a few months, and I was out cycling again. This time by myself when God in his mercy clarified things for me a bit. And when I got home, I journaled this. Coming back from Huntington Beach, whining to the Lord about having to ride by myself since Chris got injured, I was pushing against a strong wind and mad that I didn't have Chris to draft when I had the distinct impression, <laughs> when I had the distinct, distinct impression that God was saying, I'm still here, Melinda, draft me. So, I'm not a seeing God ever, you know what I mean, kind of person, but suddenly my legs felt energized like I was drafting someone and my speed picked up several miles an hour. It was a weird sensation and I told myself it was all in my head or a slight wind shift but it continued down an open stretch of Pacific Coast Highway, as if an unseen rider had jumped in front of me and I was benefiting from his draft. You see, now that I embraced the idea of submission and saw it as a benefit, I had been asking God to help me draft Chris in life and marriage. But whenever I came up to one of those moments to follow, I struggled with my opinions and questions and ideas and fears, and I could not just follow. My question, everything, intuition kept jumping in the way. But that day, God placed himself back into my analogy. And I realized that all that time I was trying to draft Chris in our marriage, I was focused on him as the leader. But riding that day, God showed me that Christ, not Chris, was the leader in the draft. 
And if I looked closely over my husband's shoulder, when I was following him, I could see the shape of the cross. Turning, from my, turning my view from simply C-H-R-I-S to C-H-R-I-S-T, the cross. I'm so close. He, he, <laughs> it's that whole cross thing that he's missing. Just a cross <laughs> That day, I realized that when I am drafting Chris, I am really drafting Christ as he leads. That's how God set it up for me. While I know from experience that realization does not lead Melinda to immediate action, so I pulled over to the side of the road in tears of confession as I cried out, but I'm no good at this, Lord. And his answer was clear and swift. You don't need to be good at it, Melinda. You just need to see me when Chris leads and follow me. The goal is to know you are following Christ when Chris is leading and simply follow. No need to question. But since questioning is what I do, I ask God, but can I trust Chris? <laughs> it's what I do. What if his decision doesn't make sense or I don't understand it or it's something, you know, crazy? You know what God's answer was? What did I teach you this very week, Melinda? So that week in women's Bible study, I'd studied how God told Abraham to offer his one and only son, Isaac, as a sacrifice on an altar to the Lord. So when God told him that, so Abraham thought about it and thought about other options and decided to offer some other ideas to God because the Lord clearly hadn't thought this through enough. Is that what Abraham did? No. It says, and the very next morning he did it. No arguing, no delaying. Tie up the son you've waited 100 plus years for, that kind of crazy. And it was counted to Abraham as righteousness and Abraham believed God, and he was called God's friend. My point, or maybe God's point to me, crazy ideas from Chris, or ideas that I don't embrace or understand, aren't the measure of whether or not I choose to obey. Trusting that God is who he says he is, works how he says he works, through our husbands, by the way, in case you missed that part, mm -hmm. and will do what he says he will do, is what he asks of us. So what did I learn on my bike ride that morning? That I'd been fighting against the natural draft of Christ through my husband. That I'd been pushing and pulling and leading and demanding and threatening and refusing to follow. That I'd been led by fear and not faith. That I had not trusted in God's ultimate plan for me as a wife and mother to be led through my husband for the benefit of me, ladies for the benefit of me. Resistance hurts me, hurts our marriage, hurts our girls, but I can tell you from experience, looking at my husband and seeing the cross makes instant followership so much easier. As I was sharing all that God was teaching me with my girlfriend Bethany, I made the comment, I know I'm going to fail at this, but I have to try. And she shot back, you're not going to fail. You'll make mistakes, but it's never failure if you keep trying. Amen. Wise advice that I intend to live by. Psalm 34, 8, a little bit rewritten. <laughs> oh, taste and see that the gift of submission to you as a wife is good. Blessed is the woman who takes refuge in it. 
So my call is to try it, ladies. You're not going to fail. You'll make mistakes, but it's never failure if you keep trying. Uh, so, I'm going to transition a little bit. It was hard to take a lot of different ideas and put them together, but what do you think the biggest struggle for Chris and I when practicing submission and headship has been in our marriage? Any guesses? Mm, yep. Bingo, bingo. Parenting. Just about the time I figured out the gift of submission and how to follow Chris into our marriage, bingo, our kids became teenagers. <laughs> oh, my word. The last eight years have felt like the whole leader-follower thing became harder than ever. You see, in hindsight, looking back, I was made to be a parent of small children. Anybody else like that? I'm structured and organized and detail-oriented, and I love to be in control and give instruction. Oh, my goodness. I will sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice if I know what I'm heading for and you give me something to do. But the idea of letting go, like you have to do with teenagers, has never been my strength. So Chris and I, in all their years of youth ministry together, talked a lot about what kind of parents we would be for those our someday teenagers and young adults. We would never be those parents <laughs> who seem to have too much control and not enough release of their parenting as the kids grew up. Chris has a great phrase that I totally agree with in theory. <laughs> it goes like this. We want our kids to trip and fall under our watch so that we can be like Jesus for them, picking them up, dusting them off, and sitting beside them with grace and love, asking, so what did you learn, and what would you like to do differently next time? <laughs> Again, in theory, I'm good with this, but in practice, that means I have to actually let them fall, which means skinned knees, or worse, skinned emotions, and what about potential scars, and the mistakes that could change the course of their whole lives. It's quite dramatic. Yes, it is in my head. <laughs> in summary, my two biggest weaknesses in parenting teenagers and young adults, letting them get hurt or make mistakes, and two, staying silent when I am being disrespected in word, tone, or pretty much in any other way. And here's the hardest part. Chris is pretty darn good at both of these areas. So we often end up on, as polar opposites when it comes to these issues and how to handle them. So how do I let him lead when it comes to parenting or some of these other hard issues? We have found the secret ingredient. But I'm warning you, it takes sacrifice and discipline to harvest the secret. T-I-M-E. Time. The Langfords love to be busy. But the problem we found is that leading and following, submission and headship take time. And they take all hands on deck meaning we have to slow down and create space in order to actually process and then act on parenting the way God intended. Passing off information on texts and phone calls and hoping it all gets handled correctly does not bode well for good communication. Or mom being the only one to relay bad news to the kids doesn't create the standard we're looking for. Time is required. Prioritize time from both mom and dad. So quickly, I'm going to go over some time issues, we could do a whole talk on this, but I want to let Chris kind of wrap us up in a minute. One, some time issues. Prioritize the husband and wife relationship. I need to know that Chris, Chris and I are one, and so do the kids. 
we welcome the girls into the family, and someday we will welcome them out of the family and to create their own families. But we will, <laughs> we will still be together. Two, create time for parenting discussions between the husband and wife. We had a counselor once tell us, you are not allowed to talk about the kids on date night. What? That's when we are just us. Nope, you had to create separate time to talk about kid issues because it was getting in the way of this. Create time for parenting discussions because there are, they are hard, right? And you'll constantly be struggling through it. It takes discipline, but it's so important for those different opinions, the polar opposites at times, to be able to be stated in a safe space, not in front of the kids. Three, time and space gives us a chance to recognize weakness in the other parent and adjust for it. My weakness, as you can probably guess by how I describe things, is fearful parenting. Remember what I said about being good when they were smaller? It's because you have so much control. Well, letting go has equaled fearful parenting for me in the teen and young adult years. Chris is aware of this and adjusts for it. Instead of getting frustrated when I bring up a fear, he recognizes it as a fear, addresses it to both of us, and then we move on, not letting it distract us from the goal of training our children to transfer their dependence from us to God. Four, temporarily retreat in crisis. I don't mean you have to come up to Hume. I mean you go behind a bedroom door or whatever needs to be done. Moms, you don't have to respond in the moment. In the mundane of parenting, this is very hard for me. But although our girls have not had too many crises, we have had a few. And in those crisis moments, although my weakness of fearful parenting wants to overtake me, my need to follow Chris's lead is stronger. I have learned that if we retreat together between, behind closed doors, we come out in perfect submission to Christ, then to Chris, and as a team with various roles to play in dealing with the crisis. I would see, say that some of our most successful moments of following biblical submission and leadership in our home have been because, because the times when a true crisis has arisen, I have called Chris and said, I need your help as soon as possible, and did not act on the situation until Chris got home. And Chris, to his credit, has responded by getting home as soon as possible, taking charge, and leading me through to the other side. Honey, these moments have been pivotal on confirming God's design for submission in our marriage. You want to share on how you see headship and leadership working itself out in our home as well? Yeah, and I also want to say, um, when Melinda mentioned just a second ago, and it, it, it sounds like such a tidy summary, uh, time and space to recognize the weakness in the other parent and adjust for, like, like fearful parenting. The way that I have learned to do this, and, and I, I will credit, I'll credit the Hamners for leading us through this, is we've done Strengths Finder. And Melinda, one of Melinda's greatest strengths is restorative. She's always trying to make whatever's broken whole. She's always trying to, you know, she comes into a room and the chairs are off a little bit, and she's like, hey, let's straighten those things. Uh, you know, she always sees what is wrong in the room. I come in the room, and I just see people, right? I just like, hey, let's talk, and, and that kind of thing. I'm, I, I'm wired completely differently. So when, when I'm adjusting for a weakness, I don't, I don't communicate to her, hey, you're being fearful. Hey, that's a weakness for you. Quiet, woman. <laughs> that, that like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. If I say that, like, I better duck or <laughs> prepare for homicidal maniac moment or something like that. Like, I, that's going to go badly for me. What I do is I would say to her, oh, I can, I can see where you want to make this better. 
you want to you wanna try to help fix this for them. But we need to let them work it through. Like, we, we got we to gotta let them figure this out. The way you go about affirming somebody while also, like, when the scriptures say men treat your woman as a, you know, remember that she's a weaker vessel. I think it's primarily talking just about, you know, like power, like you just are stronger physically. Most of you, some of you women are yoked. But, um, <laughs> but I, I, I really do believe that's talking about physically mainly, but, but we, all have, we all have weaknesses in our character. We all have weaknesses in like the things that we, uh, the, the places that we come from, our family of origin, that it creates weaknesses, right? And we, we need to be sensitive to those, but not sensitive to, in poking them or saying, you know, it's, it's that scab off. We, we accommodate for them and we treat them with the respect that they deserve. It, it's a better way of parenting. And if you don't know the strengths of your wife, I don't care if you know your own strengths. Who cares? <laughs> what I need to know are her strengths because I need to champion those even in the midst, even in the midst of what we do with parenting. Um, how, do I, how do I go about doing that? That's one illustration. I already mentioned the first environment, right? That's the yearly retreat. There are three others. The second of these four things is something Melinda and I do every single week. We go on a date night. There's nothing sacred about date night. I know you've heard it a few times. If you don't do a date night, there's no verse in the Bible that says, you must do a date night, all right? Just remember that. This is a way of creating an environment. For us, it has been, since we have been married, uh, a date night, just the two of us, without the kids, and we have hardly ever missed in 28 years. Even when our children were babies, we would make arrangements needed to prioritize our relationship. We have always been convinced that God did this first and it is most important. It centers everything in the family. We don't do it because it's fun and games. We need it because our marriage relationship needs a consistent environment for genuine like, conversations. Couples who practice a consistent weekly date night have deeper conversations, connection, and physical intimacy with one another. We found this to be abundantly true in our lives. I'm blown away, again, at the number of couples who are in the midst of difficulties. They'll be sitting in my office telling me about the stuff they're going through, and, I'll say with a, and they will say to me with a straight face, ah, date night just doesn't work for us. We don't have the time. We don't have the money. We can't bear to leave the kids alone at home. Oh, my gosh. People. Make the time. Invest the cash. Make arrangements for your kids. They will be okay. And maybe you should go to counseling so that you don't end up like a helicopter parent when you're older. <laughs> Men, you got married and maybe you forgot that that woman that you would die for is also the woman you have to live for. Pursue her. Flirt with her. Romance her. I, I suck at this, by the way. But um, <laughs> romance is like... Truly not my thing. I'm just like, hey, baby. You know, that's it. <laughs> Still got some. That'll be a future seminar. Okay. <laughs> but seriously, pick a night. Make it sacred. And go have fun. Fight the typical rut. By choosing a date night the other person would like. My wife doesn't eat flour or sugar. It's my entire diet. When I choose where we're going on, on, on a date night, I don't, pick, I don't pick my favorite burger place or a microbrewery that I would really like. 
I pick a place with great Cobb salads. <laughs> I pick a place with crispy Brussels sprouts. <laughs> I don't even like how Brussels sprouts smell. <laughs> like when they put it in the middle of the table, I slide it away from it. <laughs> I choose her, though. Third thing we do is a daily one and probably the most important. It's the most significant of all the environments. If you really want to lead your wife and your kids in your home, pray with them every single day. Before our kids go to bed each night, even now at almost 20 and 23 years old, we gather together in our living room and we pray. Our kids just know. They come out and they're like, can we pray? I'm tired. <laughs> we pause the Dodger game and we will pray with them. We had to teach our kids to pray when they were younger. I know it's hard when your kids are young. They pray about inane things. I want to have a good day. I want to have lots of nice sleep. I want to pray for the neighbor's cat. I mean, they pray about all these crazy stuff. These things are great, but you might not find them in the Bible. <laughs> and so we, we need to teach our kids how to pray. We have to instruct them, listen to them, be an example to them. Prayer is the ultimate environment for a family. It is the ultimate environment for a family. We are in a spiritual battle. Without prayer, family cannot grow closer to God. It cripples your gospel example if you do not pray. And I know, I know you guys well enough that are in the room to know some of you feel inadequate to do this. So I want you to hear me. Don't, don't pray for yourself. I'm just going to give you a little bit of, of a pointer. Just never pray for yourself when you're with your family. You've got plenty of time that you can pray for yourself all the rest of the day. When you pray with your family, always pray for the other people. Minister to them. Minister to others. Beg at the throne of God on their behalf. Say it in your own language, but stand in the gap for them. And they will learn over time to do the same for you. There's always time to pray for yourself. But this is the only time that they will hear you pray for them. Do so and do it in a way that shows them how to pray. Men, pray for the spiritual protection of your household. If you don't do it, who will? Ephesians 6.12 says that we are in a battle not against flesh and blood, which is what we often pray about, but we are in a battle against principalities, against dark forces, cosmic forces, things that we cannot see and that only God can protect us from. Pray for the protection of your family. If your role is to provide and protect, this is absolutely crucial. God did not win you into his family so that you could just be asleep at the wheel when it comes to the spiritual protection of your family. In addition to this, Melinda and I get together every evening. When we go to bed together, we have done this since May 14th of 2004. We go to bed together every night. We don't, somebody doesn't stay up and watch the TV in order to get tired. We don't, we don't do that kind of thing. We've, we were told you should try to go to bed together, and we have. We've gone to bed together ever since then. We turn off the TV. Now, just so it doesn't sound, you know, nutball. Are there nights that I've had to stay up for work? Or I've had, I, I went to seminary. And are there nights I had to stay up and study? Yes. But they're the exception. This has not been the rule. 
When we go to bed, we always pray together. Every single night when we go to bed, we pray together. And I only pray for her, and she only prays for me. Something profound about hearing your spouse pray for you. When they pick out the things that you said during the day, just offhandedly, when they look at your schedule and they know what's coming, when, they, when they've interacted with your life and I hear her pray for, over me, it blesses me. It means something. Pray for your spouse. This woman right here, she's the daughter of the king of heaven. And he has allowed me to take her as my wife. I'm praying for the daughter of a king. And so I pray that his rich blessing would be over her life. Do you want to be the best parents you can? Do you want to be in a marriage, if you don't have kids yet, that that really sets up your future parenting for the blessing of God, then, then this right here is the most important thing. This is the family that you got to concentrate on. We had five years of marriage before we had kids. And I so much look forward to when those kids leave so <laughs> I can get back to that fun that we were having that first five years. Make your home a place of the deepest relationship, the truest intimacy. And... Finally, the last environment, and it's a super simple one. Once a month, we combine our calendars. This has been made so much easier by technology, hasn't it? We have a shared family calendar so that we know where the other person's at. And Melinda has professional calendars for work, and I have professional calendars, and we share them with each other so that we know what's going on, and we know where people are, and we know how to schedule our lives. For many of us, guys, we spend a lot of time at our jobs, and now my wife actually spends probably more time at her job than I do. But I seldom work less than 50 hours a week. I'm, I'm the pastor. I'm the executive in the building. Uh, when I come home, I just want to flop down on the couch. I want to turn on the Dodger game, and, and I want to have something cold and eat. That's it. This is a problem. <laughs> Men who come home from work but are asleep at the wheel with their family. So I want to encourage you guys in the, in the most clear way that I can uh, to create a different environment when you go home. Drive around the block one more time or something to communicate to your own heart that what you need to do is when you walk in that house, um, you are not going to be just a passive couch potato. Um, I want to challenge you. And these are the words of a, a pastor who's in Omaha, Nebraska. I want to challenge you to come home from work like you are going to work at a job that you love, at a place that you love. Come alongside your wife to talk, listen, and learn her. Play with your kids. Do some chores. Make some jokes. Read the Bible. Pray together, maybe. Play a game. Make some dessert. Fix something that's broken. Flirt with your wife. Sit and talk to her. Whatever you do, do it heartily. Do it intentionally. Like a guy who is there. Engage with his family, not escaping from his family. Because I got to say, I agree with Eric Raymond. 90% of the problems that happen in families are because dad's asleep at the wheel. Because he's working so hard to be a provider that he forgets that he's a husband and that he's a dad. 
I'll say it straightforwardly, if, if you expect these things to come together magically, if you expect your finances to just reorder themselves, if you expect your schedules to suddenly fall into place, if you expect your teenagers to spontaneously decide, I'm going to stay home and just talk to you about my dreams and my life and my future. <laughs> um, if, if you expect these things to happen by mistake, I've got news, it's never going to happen. Nothing good happens by mistake. And nothing good happens by mistake in a marriage or a family. Men, make it your mission. To initiate a time with your wife once a month, at least, where you can talk business. When our kids were younger, we had to do even more. Uh, one of those items we try to keep in front of ourselves, and we're going to have to just go really fast here. We're, I'm going to skip it. Great. The, the whole financing? Yep. Oh, okay. Well, look at the clock. Yeah, I one saw the clock. watching the clock. I was, I was just kind of <laughs> trying to hand it off. Um, we would love to talk to you if finance is your struggle. We have, that's been our second biggest, is money and parenting. I so, think money should be spent. And I think money should be saved. <laughs> so so you can imagine. Prepared. No. Anyways, we could talk about that a lot, but I'm, gonna, I'm going to just move on to the, uh, to the closing. Um, if you had asked me 21 years ago, or even 10 years ago, if I would be here talking on submission and headship, I would have cowered up the idea. But today I'd say that I've discovered that following and submitting is a gift from God for my benefit. And it is a learned skill that I have to consciously choose to put into practice daily. Focusing on following Christ through Chris's leadership. Be a student of your spouse. Why do we study the word of God? So that we can know Christ and following him becomes more and more natural. Why do we study our husband or wife for the same reason? to do what God has called us to do for our benefit, for this benefit, for the benefit of the family, and ultimately for the benefit of the kingdom. Just like we will never know full submission to God on earth, we will not be able to carry out perfect headship and submission, leadership and followership this side of heaven. It's definitely a journey. You'll make mistakes, but it's never failure if you keep trying. I came from a disorganized home, like I told you earlier. Melinda came from a really organized home, and she's a business major. She's better with money, trust me, than I am. Um, so submission, like, do, do I just tell her, hey, you got to do, you got you to do money my way. Submission doesn't mean that I just boss my wife around. That's not what the Bible means. That's not what it says. That's not at all its intent. It means I lead like Jesus. I sacrifice. I serve. And if she's better at finances, she takes the lead. And she does so with my blessing, not with my frustration that she wants to save a nickel or two. It's for God's best, and it's our best. Leading often means knowing and being real with yourself about your own strengths and your own, probably even more so, your own weaknesses. And being able to lead through them with honesty, transparency, and authenticity. I said this last night, and I would say this morning. I, we've tried to open the doors of our home to you. We've invited you in to see how it actually works, like nuts and bolts of what we've been talking about all weekend. There have been some epic failures, <laughs> but there have been some totally undeserved successes as well. Uh, but we keep moving forward, and we try to learn from both. Our prayer for you is that you would also consider these things and that you would pursue revealing the gospel 
in the midst of your family, whether it's just two of you or it's two plus, by pouring yourself, body and soul, back into your marriage and family for the sake of your church and for God's gospel purposes in the world. This is our prayer, and as you already know, we really do. We really do pray for these things. When we go to bed at night and with our children, just know we have been praying for you. We have been praying for you that these things would enter into your hearts and minds through God's word and his Holy Spirit. And truly, we would be pleased if you would also be praying for us. Let's go to him now. God, four things that you've revealed to us that fit daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly. But God, these have created environments that have been transformative and life-changing. Practical, but meaningful. Simple, but so complex. Father God, I pray that you yourself would fall upon us and that, God, you'd bring change and transformation But more than anything, God, I pray that you would help us to turn to our spouse and reinvest in him or her. God, to to truly be committed to your purposes in headship and submission for marriage and the way that it gives you glory, the way that it reflects your character. God, Melinda and I come to you this morning and we submit ourselves to these things. And Father, I pray over my brothers and sisters that are here that they also would do the same. God, we give you our whole lives, every part, even the stubborn, bitter parts that we don't want to look at. We give them to you and pray that you would bring your glory into our lives. In the name above all names, the name of Jesus, amen.